Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. There are parts of me I think only come alive on the radio. I ran upstairs, plugged it in, and I became obsessed with the radio. My whole raison d'etre is to play music that I absolutely love. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. Being a DJ on the radio feels uh, like a luxury, like a responsibility. And for this episode, a DJ who became Radio 1's youngest ever presenter. And I said, this will last a year. I was saying, I'll go to uni to do my media studies course in a year. But I'd be foolish to turn down a job where there's a chance of me meeting John Peel. He's hosted the BBC's Glastonbury coverage. It's a fascinating thing to do because, I mean, it's completely different to radio. People always compare telly and radio, but they're completely different beasts, I think. And and you sort of learn on the job. And he's the founder of the Soon Festival. We wanted to do it properly. We didn't want somebody to come in and do it and do their version of the festival. We wanted to be reflective of the Cardiff that we knew. You're in this fantasy world where it's all about the next two, three hours. It's about the radio show ahead of you. And you've got to steer it and drive people and bring people with you and make it as fun and as comfortable as you possibly can and as interesting as you possibly can as well. Hugh Stevens, welcome to How to DJ. Hello, Chris Hawkins. How are you? Very well, my friend. Thank you. What are your earliest music memories, Hugh? I think my earliest musical memories was my sisters are older than me. They're 12, 13, 14 years older than me. I have three sisters and they had posters on their wall for The Cure, Boys Don't Cry. And they had U2 posters and they had a lot of Welsh language records. They were big into the Welsh language music scene because we were brought up in a Welsh speaking house, a home in Cardiff. So it was them, really. My my mum and dad had a lot of records as well. My father was into minority languages from across Europe. So there was a lot of Irish, a lot of Gaelic records, a lot of Johnny Cash records, and he's remained a favourite ever since as well. So I think those were my first musical memories when I was very little. Did you speak English or Welsh at home growing up? Welsh. Only Welsh. We still only speak Welsh at home. My wife's a Welsh speaker, so my sons go to... Well, speaking primary school like I did, like she did in West Wales, like I did in Cardiff. So, yeah, Welsh, I mean, it's if you're not used to it, it's a shock for some people that this happens. <laughs> but for us, it's completely normal, you know. So, yeah, I was brought up as a Welsh speaker. I learned English from my grandmother because she couldn't speak Welsh and then in school as well. So this obviously then, because my parents were big into the Welsh language, music played a big part in growing up for me because they were they were keen for Welsh language culture to be introduced to their children. So I think that happens a lot in Wales as well, where they go, you want to go to the Eisteddfod for a week when you're 16 with your mates and just go wild? It's fine because it's a Welsh language thing. They'll be fine, you know, (laughs) there's a trust there. And I think that still happens today. 
What kind of a school kid were you, Hugh? I was interested in talking to the teachers. I loved chatting to the teachers. I loved chatting to my fellow pupils. Because it's such a shock, isn't it, going to high school after being in junior school. You meet kids from other parts of wherever you live. And it's a shock, but it was a real eye-opener. And I loved it. So I really enjoyed school. I mean, I grew up in such a happy, you know, carefree house. I was really lucky in that my mum and dad brought us up in a loving household where, you know, I didn't have any troubles. And um, I feel so lucky about that. And school was like a reflection of this as well. It was close to where I lived. My sisters had been to the school years previously. Of course, by the time I was going to school, they were in university and they were off doing the next part of their lives. So I suppose I kind of grew up with just my mum and dad after my sisters had left home. And I kind of, I, I took school. I enjoyed every part of school, to be honest. Although academically, I was not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I should say. Although I enjoyed it all, academically, I wasn't, I mean, I was all right in languages. I was all right in drama and media studies. But, you know, maths and science, I didn't have any time for any of that. What were your ambitions? So my ambitions in school when I was very young, Chris, I became obsessed with magic and with magicians. And I loved Saturday Night, Paul Daniels' TV show. That was a big one. David Copperfield was a big one. My mum took me to see him in Earl's Court when I was 11 and took me round the magic shops of London, Davenport's and the Charing Cross Station, International Magic, which is an amazing magic shop in Farringdon. And then I kind of switched the magic for music. I think I discovered radio. My grandmother's old record player had a radio built into it. And I found, I think it was Atlantic 252, first of all. And then I became utterly obsessed with Virgin 1215. And because I didn't really know much about music then, I was like 12, 13, they were saying things like, this is the most exciting new artist in the world. This is Sheryl Crow. And they'd go, you know, they were kind of selling Crowded House as the most cutting edge new band of all times. Like, what? you know, this is like pre-Oasis, pre-Blur, pre-Britpop. So I was going, okay, like Alanis Morissette, she sounds edgy, I'm into this. Meatloaf, <laughs> I'm into this. I'll buy this on CD single in Asda on Friday. And so I loved Virgin Radio. And I think that's what got me into, what made me fall in love with radio in the first place, was that relationship between the DJs and me, the listener, because I would phone the studio in London and have a chat with Russ and Jono, with Mitch Johnson, with Nick Abbott, with Tommy Rambo, what a guy Rivers. <laughs> and all of these names are flooding back to me now. But, you know, Virgin at the time, it was on AM frequency and they started a campaign, get Virgin onto FM. And so you'd have to write to them and say, send me a petition through the post. And they'd post you a piece of paper petition, which I would then take around my school friends, asking them to sign to get Virgin Radio onto FM. Like, yeah, this is important. In the grand scheme of things, I was thinking, this is really important. And so, yeah, it was like a community, which is what all radio stations are, I suppose. It kind of builds a community around you. And I was 12, 13 then. And that was before I found Steve Lamack and Joe Wiley on the evening session on Radio 1. And that's when 
I kind of went, ah, okay, this is actually what's going on. This is what's happening. These are the older brothers and sisters on the radio telling me what's exciting and what's good. And then that changed my life even more then, I suppose, because I suppose I kind of grew up and I switched stations. And the constant through all of that, I was also listening to late night Radio Cymru, the Welsh language station, where I now present on once a week. So that was a big part as well, because they were playing Welsh language bands who I'd see on telly, on S4C, and would play in my school, and so on and so on. So that was a constant as well. I had no idea that we had such parallel lives, because I was really into magic as well. Mm. And, and, Atlantic 252, I remember going to the payphone at school during break times, ringing up with the phrase that pays to try and win 252 quid. Incredible. I mean, I remember phoning Virgin Radio before I got on a ferry. Me and my mum and dad were going on holiday to Cork. And before we got on the ferry, I rang Virgin to tell them that I was going away. I mean, it's the equivalent of dropping a WhatsApp to a radio station out or tweeting for a shout out, isn't it? But it was pre-mobile phones, I should add. And... As you say, going to the payphone was the normal thing to do then. It sounds utterly bonkers now, but back then it was the way of getting in touch. But also radio stations would send me stuff through the post. Virgin would send me their annual through the post. They'd send me a wad of CDs. I've still got them, like Elvis Costello albums, postcards from all the DJs signed. And I think, you know, it'd be a sad day when radio stations decide to stop sending signed postcards of their DJs to keen fans. One of the only competitions I've ever won was on Radio Shropshire. I won a, a copy of Like a Virgin by Madonna, signed. Amazing. Have you still got it? I have signed, I should say, by the DJ who presented the show, not oh. by Madonna. <laughs> oh, really? What? The DJ signed it? themselves. Yeah, Mike Naylor on Radio Shropshire handed it to me in person. I was so excited to have won. I got my mum to drive me to the radio station and he came out and I couldn't believe that I was meeting him. And so he signed the record to Chris with love from Mike Naylor. It's amazing because, I mean, these people are important, aren't they? They're important to the people that you're listening to. DJs can be important and still are, and they have various roles. But when you're young, and you're listening to people, it sounds like another world. So when I realised that these were nice people and they were human beings, and when I realised that this was a job that you could do, I became fixated on that then. Because of Mike coming out to sign your Madonna record, because people, these were human beings, I was like, okay, this is actually a job option. I mean, nobody was talking about it in school. I wouldn't have dreamt of saying, I want to be a DJ, or I want to be on Radio 1, because... I mean, that's the stuff of dreams, isn't it? But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, I could do this somewhere, surely. So what was your first experience doing radio? So on Radio Cymru, I was reviewing CDs. I was Dr. Pop, which translates from Welsh to English as Dr. Pop. And I was reviewing albums and EPs weekly on the phone from my bedroom. I would make notes about what I thought about these CDs. And I would do like a minute, two minute review. And I did that as well. I've still got the letter somewhere for Collins and McConey's album show on Radio 1 where I reviewed the Foo Fighters. And that was a huge moment, you know. I did a trail for Russ and Jono on Virgin in Welsh. They asked me to do something down the phone, which I did when I was about 13. And then proper radio was hospital radio. 
It was Rookwood Sound 9.45am in Cardiff, which is still going. I did it through the Duke of Edinburgh Award. I'd go in every Tuesday night and I'd volunteer for a few hours. And I did everything that everyone who's ever done hospital radio did. I went around the wards getting requests. I filed the vinyl alphabetically. I did a bit of dusting. And I sat in and watched other presenters do their show. And then after about six months of that, they teamed me up with a nice man called Stuart and we did a show every Saturday together. And then I did that. So I was about 15 then. And just loved it. I got the local record label, Angst Records, hugely influential Welsh label to sponsor the show. And that meant just giving me loads of CDs to play. The playlist was nuts. It'd go like Lighthouse Family, Lifted, into Gorky's Iconic Monkey, Merchedin Gwallli Gilid, into Roxy Music, more than this, into Early Super Furry Animals. Is my ideal playlist, really. Looking back, I absolutely loved it. And so, yeah, I did that for a couple of years, volunteering, did the weekly show there. And I think, you know, looking back, I was young, but one of the great things hospital radio does, for listeners of your podcast outside the UK, I think it's a UK phenomenon, this, where we have many radio stations within hospitals. And they, you know, they do the same as every other station. They build a community around them, and they're there for the patients and the listeners when they need them. But also, it's a brilliant breeding ground for DJs. The one that I did was in an orthopaedic hospital. So bear that in mind. When I tell you the name of the radio station was Fractured Sound. Incredible. I mean, <laughs> they named it that on purpose, did they? Yeah, yeah. Wow, I love it. And where was that? Was that in Shropshire? That was at Osborne Street Orthopaedic Hospital, yeah. How did that hospital radio then turn into Radio 1 for you? In 98, 1999, devolution was happening in the UK and the Scottish government and the Welsh government. You had the Northern Ireland peace process happening and somebody at the BBC thought, we need shows that reflect what's going on in the different parts and the different countries within the UK. And so... The budget was set aside and Radio 1 said, we're going to have shows from these countries broadcasting in those countries, but on BBC Radio 1. And I'd met Bethan Elvin, who was at the time a producer in BBC Wales in Bangor. I'd met her at a few gigs and I'd told her at a Gorky Psychotic Monkey gig once, I would love to do your job one day. Because in my mind, I wanted to be a radio producer. I was going to go and do media studies in Bangor Uni with the hope one day of being a radio producer. That was my goal, my dream job. And she knew about Radio 1's plans. So she started piloting different presenters and she remembered me and she got me in to do a pilot with her. And I was 18 at the start, oh, sorry, I was 17 at the time. And she got me in to do another pilot and Radio 1 liked it and another one. And they liked that I had radio experience. They liked that I was into the Welsh and English language music scene in Wales, that I was young, that I was based in Cardiff, I guess. And lo and behold, myself and Beth and Elvin got the job. So I will always be eternally grateful to Bethan for giving me that opportunity. And that's what, you know, radio is so much about that. We can all remember people who've given us a key foot in the door and welcomed us in. And I mean, Bethan's continued to do that with bands and artists throughout her radio career and still does that on her BBC Horizons project, which is like, I guess it's like the BBC introducing in Wales. So yeah, that was huge. And we started that show. It was the session in Wales every Thursday night. So Steve Lamack was doing the evening session 
And then in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, we had various shows. So Colin and Donna, Colin Murray now on Five Live would do Northern Ireland. Vic Galloway and Jill Mills would do Scotland. Vic still on Radio Scotland, of course. And me and Beth in Wales. I mean, I was 18, so all my mates were going off to university mostly. And I stayed in Cardiff. And I said, this will last a year, I was saying. I'll go to uni to do my media studies course in a year. But I'd be foolish to turn down a job where there's a chance of me meeting John Peel and all the other Radio 1 DJs. And so that's what I did. I did it for a year. And if I'd have known then that I'd still be on Radio 1 21 years later, I would pinch myself because it's a rolling contract. And I always kind of, in the back of my mind, you always think, you know, things have to change. I understand that. And so, you know, this might be my last year. And then, um, yeah, we had the best time on the session in Wales. And it was amazing because there was a real energy. You'd had all the bands breaking out of Wales, like Stereophonics, Super Furries, Gorkies, Catatonia. And we were kind of supporting the next wave of artists coming through. And it was amazing that there was a show with a decent budget on Radio 1 that would give sessions to bands and artists, you know, every week. And we would go to gigs across Wales and reflect what was going on. And then, of course, there was opportunities then to stand in for Steve Lamarck and to do shows across the UK, go to Maida Vale and take these bands and artists with us. What are your best memories of your time at Radio 1, Hugh? My best memories are going to my first ever Radio 1 Christmas party. I think it was in Fabric. And bear in mind, I was 18. I drank too much. I woke up on some stairs during the party with then children's TV superstar Jamie Theakston above me with a pint of milk, leaning down, going, drink this, this will help, it will line your stomach. I'd grown up watching Jamie Theakston on, you know, live and kicking and Saturday morning telly, it was a big deal. So I was like, thank you, Jamie. I don't think I ever spoke to him again. I remember, I mean, getting to hang out with Steve Lamack has been just a joy and to call him a friend has been, you know, such a privilege. Meeting John Peel, working with John Peel um, was an utter joy. Um, and just seeing lots of great music, really. I mean, it sounds so obvious, but, you know, all the festivals we got to go to, all the Glastonbury's and the Green Man's and Reading Festival. So, you know, a lot of happy memories at Radio 1. Met a lot of lovely people. And saw a lot of change at Radio 1 as well. You know, a lot of DJs came and went. A lot of fashion and musical trends came and went. But, you know, I had a really great time. And I always knew that I was very lucky to be there because, you know, radio is it's an amazing thing to do. But lots of people do it. So to get to be on such a massive platform as Radio 1 was a, something I thought was a huge privilege. You mentioned Glastonbury. How was it hosting your first time at the Glastonbury coverage for the BBC on television? Nerve-wracking, because you spend your entire life without somebody in your ear going, OK, you need to film now for seven minutes, and then suddenly you're live on BBC telly with somebody in your ear going, we'd like you to film now for seven minutes. But luckily, you do it with pros, you know, you do it with Lauren Laverne and Joe Wiley and Mark Radcliffe. So it was quite surreal hosting Glastonbury on telly because I'd grown up watching Joe Wiley and Lauren and John Peel and Mark Radcliffe doing it. And that's my introduction to Glastonbury Festival. It's a fascinating thing to do because, I mean, it's completely different to radio. 
people always compare telly and radio, but they're completely different beasts, I think. And, and you sort of learn on the job. And that's one thing I've learned is that I think everybody's learned on the job. And this kind of, sometimes I meet people who are suffering from imposter syndrome. And I think everybody feels a little bit of that. You know, nobody's born to being a successful rock band or to be an amazing rapper or to host a festival live on telly. They're opportunities that you're given and you sort of learn on the job, I think. But it's a, it's a lot of fun and it's a thrill to do. While you were at Radio 1, Hugh, you started the Soon Festival. Why did you want to set up your own festival? I'd been to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas and Iceland Airwaves and in the city in Manchester. And I just thought Cardiff would be brilliant for a festival like this. Why haven't we got one? And me and my friend John decided to just do it before anybody else did because we wanted to do it properly. We didn't want somebody to come in and do it and do their version of the festival. We wanted to be reflective of the Cardiff that we knew. So that's what we did. And we don't run it anymore. Club Iverbach, the venue in Cardiff, run it now and they do a fantastic job in running it. And I think it's in like its 16th, 17th year. And, you know, it's not an original idea at all. It's lots of venues across the city. But these festivals are really important as anyone who goes to Dot to Dot and Live at Leeds and all the other festivals that exist know they're really important for bringing people together and for highlighting what goes on all year round. It's a bit like Independent Venue Week in a way where it's great for that week, but it highlights all the other things that these venues and places do for the rest of the year. I want to know about your new show on Radio Wales evenings. What kind of freedom do you have on the show, Hugh? I have a lot of freedom. I only play stuff that I like. I can play new artists that I like. I can play classics. I think that balance is really important on Radio Wales. What I love about it is I can interview interesting people without any time frame. So they can be long form interviews. They can be journalists and authors, musicians, people who are doing interesting stuff in Wales, because there is a lot of things going on in Wales. And sometimes there's a bit of a divide between North and South and between the languages. So my hope is that it can highlight everything that's going on and bring everything together. So yeah, I love it. I, it's um, night times, it's 7 till 10pm, three nights a week. It's always on BBC Sounds. And also, I wanted to work more in Wales. I wanted to, it was a dream to be on BBC Radio Wales, if I'm honest. So again, I feel very lucky to be on Radio Wales and to be able to reflect what's going on in my home country, but to a massive audience, thanks to BBC and BBC Sounds and that. So yeah, I love it. I feel very lucky to do it. I moved back to Wales about six, seven years ago. I was in London. I was still on Radio 1. But I just had this pull in me that I wanted to move home. I hated visiting home, visiting Cardiff, and only being there for a day and thinking, I need to do this and see these people and do this. And I hated it. I hated having my time limited to being at home in Cardiff in Wales. So me and my wife, who's also Welsh, which, you know, made it easier, I guess, to move home, um, move back to Cardiff. And I'm really glad that we did then because, you know, with everything that's happened, I mean, my dad died after, a few, you know, some years after I'd moved home, about four years ago now. So I got to spend time with him before he passed away. Have you got any ambitions that you haven't achieved yet, Hugh? When I was in school, my only ambition was to live in a flat where I could keep a bike in the hallway. 
thought that was like, oh my God, the most bohemian thing ever. I think I'd seen it in a film. So the minute I did that, and we lived in a flat above Pizza Express in Cardiff City Centre, I was happy. And I'm not a massively ambitious person. I've never been that ambitious. I've always found that if you take pride in your work and if you are patient, like patience is so important, I think, that everything that happens is a bonus and is a nice surprise. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to work and people need to work to make a living. And I've always been fortunate enough to do that. So you sort of make opportunities happen for yourself. But I think because I was in work from such a young age and I had this amazing platform, I've always tried to use that to make other things happen, like the Soon Festival. We set up the Welsh Music Prize some 12 years ago as well. Like It baffled me that all these amazing albums were coming out from Welsh artists and there was no one place to celebrate it. And other countries, like, you know, across all of Europe, you had the Norwegian Music Prize and the Irish Music Prize. Why was there no Welsh Music Prize? So we set that up as well. So I suppose I'm not ambitious, but I have ideas and I try and act on them and make things happen. But yeah, it's lovely having a radio show where you can make those things happen. You know, sometimes you've got to take a step back and go, oh, this is where I can act out my ideas is actually on the platform that I already have and not freak out about doing other things. So, you know, people often ask me, why don't I have a podcast? And the truth is, I've got nothing much to say. And everything I do say, I say in my radio shows. And all the interesting people I chat to, I do in my radio shows. Although I did host the first ever Radio 1 podcast, except it was called a download back then. And we didn't know what podcasts were. Um, and it was like a snippet of music and a bit about the band. But technically, the first ever Radio 1 podcast. Hugh, before we head into the box of questions, Griff Reese, he's your cousin, right? Griff Reese is my cousin, yeah, my first cousin. Do you not talk about it or are you happy to talk about it? Very happy to talk about it. I mean, you know, I'm a massive fan of Griff's work and of his music over the years. You know, Super Furry Animals, my favourite band. And, you know, Griff's such a lovely, lovely man. He's a true one-off. I think he's a super talented, you know, he's a musical genius and he's done so many creative things. So I've always had, you know, like anyone who meets him, I think, kind of, it's like, it's, it's Griff, you know, this guy's amazing. And, you know, we're cousins and my mum and his mum are sisters and um, I'm very happy to talk about it. But what I don't do is mention it every time a Super Furry Animals record comes up on a playlist when I stand in on Six Music or on Radio Wales or, or Radio Cymru. But um, occasionally I do. No, I think it'd be boring if I talked about it all the time. He is uh, just like you, very lovely guy. I introduced him on stage at a festival and... I said, do you, are you okay with, do you want the introduction? They've asked me to do it. Are you, do you want it? And he looked around. I'm not going to attempt his um, very softly spoken Welsh accent, but he, he said, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, he speaks quite slowly, doesn't he? So he's like, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think it, it would be a good thing because um, it might get a few more people to the stage. <laughs> there you go. He's a very sensible man. He's very practical, is Griff, as well. As well as as being very creative, he's a very practical man, I think. (laughs) A lovely, gentle guy, just like yourself. It's time now then, Hugh. Am I even... I keep saying your name, and um, I I don't think you're precious about it, but I am pronouncing it in a kind of English way. 
So I'd say Hugh Stevens. Hugh, I suppose. But I'm, I've become accustomed to Hugh. And, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's spelled H-U-W, um, which is, I suppose, yeah, it's, I'd say Hugh, but you call me Hugh. That's all right. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to see some amazing musicians from amazing angles that um, I can only dream of, really. I love listening to radio, which I will never present, and just listening to it and absorbing it. Time now then to dip into the box of 45s here. I want uh, five picks from you from this record box. Okay, every single sleeve has a question on it. So I'll dip into the box. You say when, I'll pull one out. Okay, go. How does being a DJ make you feel? Um, When I DJ live in front of people, which doesn't happen that often anymore, thank goodness, I feel pressure to keep people dancing. Being a DJ on the radio feels uh, like a luxury, like a responsibility and is really enjoyable. You know, when you go into that studio, you know, whatever's happening in real life, you kind of have to forget about. And the minute that fader goes up and the mic goes up, you're in this fantasy world where it's all about the next two, three hours. It's about the radio show ahead of you and you've got to steer it and drive people and bring people with you and make it as fun and as comfortable as you possibly can and as interesting as you possibly can as well. Does that answer the question? It answers it brilliantly. Brilliant analysis. Uh, Back into the box for question two. Go. Your next question, Hugh, is, is there anything you would like to erase from your CV? Oh, yeah. There is footage of me doing magic on telly, on S4C, the Welsh language channel. And occasionally it rears its head. And occasionally I email the media company who posted up and ask them to take it back down again, which kindly they do. <laughs> do you still do magic? No, I don't. I, I still sometimes enjoy watching magic being done. I've been to the Magic Castle in LA been to the magic circle in london anyone can go buy a ticket in houston it's an amazing place um so i still have a respect for beautifully intricate magic and magicians but i mean i'll do it for my kids i mean i used to do magic shows chris i used to when i was like 11 before music got me and radio got me i used to do magic shows for kids under the name houdini and i still (laughs) get kids coming up to me now going you did my party when i was seven and I was only a few years older than them then, back then. So I'll always have a fond place in my heart for well-done magic. Did you ever get to see Paul Daniels? You mentioned him earlier. I did, actually. I saw him not long before he died. He was doing a run of shows in Piccadilly Circus, and him and Debbie McGee, and it was brilliant. And I also saw him on my 13th birthday, when my mum drove us to see him in Patalbot. And he was fantastic. He was the magician's magician, wasn't he? I never got to see him myself, but I did once get to see his son, Martin Daniels, and I've still got the signed photo now. As have I. I've got a signed Martin Daniels photo as well. Probably mass-produced, Bob Dylan style. <laughs> no, he signed it there and then personally for me. Uh, okay, all right. But who knew that uh, we both have signed Martin Daniels photo? Yeah, and who knew we'd be end up chatting about Martin Daniels? <laughs> Back into the box, you for question three. Okay, go. Uh, this, okay, uh, who are you most thrilled to have shared a stage with? 
Oh my goodness. Um, well, when I was comparing Reading Festival, I did the main stage at Reading for about 10 years. And that was just insane because you had on stage access. So you'd see Kendrick Lamar from the wings, you know. Um, and my wife gave him a little thumbs up when he walked off after playing Reading one year and he gave her a thumbs up back. It's just so nice of him. It was an incredible set. So seeing so many bands and artists on that stage over the years has been um, like a, a, a pinch me moment. So although we're not technically sharing a stage, we are technically sharing a stage. I can say I shared a stage with Bert Bacharach, but what it was is I managed to blag myself onto that pyramid stage at Glastonbury and watched him, you know. Um, so yeah, I've been... Very fortunate to see some amazing musicians from amazing angles that um, I can only dream of, really. I love that your wife gave Kendrick Lamar her endorsement. She did. She gave him a little clap and a thumbs up, and he <laughs> gave her a thumbs up back after, like, smashing it uh, on the main stage at Reading. It was uh, quite surreal. Another one from the box. Question four, Hugh. Say when. Okay, when. What's the best song ever? I'm going to go for Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys as the best song ever. It was our first dance at our wedding. Although, I mean, ask me tomorrow and I might pick a different song. That's the one that jumped into my head. Um, I'm reading Nick Cave's book with Sean O'Hagan at the moment. And I think Into My Arms is up there. But again, it could change tomorrow. Final question, Hugh, from the box. Say when. Okay, go, Chris. Your final question, Hugh, is what have you still got to do? What I've still got to do is I've got to figure out what to do with all the CDs I've been collecting for the last 25 years. Just doing my head in. And um, I've got rid of the ones I don't need and I've kept the ones I do need. And now I'm looking at those going, probably don't need these either. So I need to figure that out. Um and also, I I love a new challenge. I love doing. Um, I love being put in different circumstances and situations on the radio and working my way to present them. So there is an amazing journalist, and I emailed him a while back. He did a daily news show, and I emailed him going, "Would it be alright if I sat in on your show to see you do the show one day?" And he emailed me and his bosses going, "This is Hugh." who would like to stand in on the show one day. And I was going, no, 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 because <laughs> like that's the difference between sitting in, yeah, casually sitting in on the show, and standing in where you're doing the show. So that freaked me out. But I do love seeing other programs that are out of my comfort zone being presented and done. I mean, I think that's, you know, it's if you can work your way into studios to see things like that being done. Um, so I love listening to radio which I will never present, and just listening to it and absorbing it. You know, talk radio is fascinating to me because, you know, I play music on the radio. I always have done. And if I've got nothing to say, which is often, I just play another song um, and let the music do the talking. So to do a... I'd love the challenge of of chatting for a bit, although my voice would have to be a little less hoarse than it currently is, Chris. It's been brilliant spending this time with you. Thank you. I've got one last question. There's some kind of catastrophic event with a caveat that you have to play the last three records on earth. What would they be? <laughs> oh, yeah, just casually spring that on me at the end of the chat. I'd play Super Furry Animals 
it's not the end of the world. No brainer. Because hopefully it won't be. I'll play Love Is All You Need by The Beatles. And I'd play... I might bring out Abba Gold, you know, and play Thank You For The Music. <laughs> Superb choices. Hugh, it's been a, such a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for all the brilliant questions on the podcast. What an honour to be on How To DJ. Thank you so much. And that was How To DJ. How To DJ. How To DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. 